On this week's Inside Marketing, we'll be talking about, well, lots of different things, actually. I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Ritson, and we'll talk about, amongst other things, whether the industry is losing its relevance and whether brand purpose is a load of absolute nonsense. So stay tuned as Inside Marketing meets Mark Ritson. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. This episode is going to be slightly different. We're not going to talk about a specific topic. This is going to be one where I meet a leading figure in our industry. And as far as big names go, they don't come much bigger than my guest today. Brand consultant, marketing professor, and brilliant columnist for Marketing Week. He's a man who's not afraid to voice the sometimes less popular opinions. He needs no introduction. It's Mark Ritson. Welcome, Mark. Hey, good day, Super Dave. How are you? Uh, greetings from Australia. Yeah, greetings from Ireland. We were just chatting off mic there that you guys are kind of the opposite to Ireland. But how's, um, in terms of the cases and the vaccination levels, we're doing quite well. You guys are behind the vaccinations. But how's business for you at the moment? How's the pandemic been? Is business going well? Are you doing well? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in a very unusual position in that I was running three years before COVID. I'd made the move to online training and then COVID came along and I didn't do the business any harm. We were still doing pretty good, but it certainly helped a little bit that Companies, for example, can't do. Tra- I've been able to do training for twelve months, so mm. we've been picking up some very big accounts and doing it all online. So yeah, business is great. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. So I think we've we've adapted. Well, we've no choice. I mean, I often. I laugh when I commend how well we've pivoted and, and but we have no choice. So, I mean, we, we had to do what we had to yeah. do. So we've a lot to talk about. Hopefully we get it all done. Uh, I'm going to start off broadly. So I want to talk about marketing generally, just to get your point of view. Well, advertising generally, I think in my opinion, advertising has lost its impact. And I mean, it's lost its impact both in terms of its presence and its power in the boardroom. Increasingly, mark, less marketing people are running companies now. It's more finance people. But I think marketing has also lost its presence in culture. When we think back about campaigns 20, even 10 years ago, marketing used to create more of an impact. And I think less and less campaigns just influence culture these days or are are generally talked about. So do you agree with that? Do you think it's happening less and less today? And why do you think that's the case? It's very difficult because we're both men of a certain age, right? And we may be getting a bit fogey-ish about the industry. I don't think so, but there is always that risk. I do agree, Dave. I think if you stop the average man or woman in the street in Dublin and said to them, what's your favorite ad right now? I think they would struggle to think of anything and then end up pulling something from 1996. Mm. And I think, you know, that's a very interesting moment in time that we don't have those, you know, those tango ads, those uh, Kerrygold ads, you know, the ads that everybody used to know aren't really present like they are today. So I, I do agree. And what's causing it? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, the positive explanation is we can now go after smaller groups in a more bottom of the funnel way. You don't need to drop an atomic bomb via Mm. TV or via outdoor to have the same impact, right? Facebook can be stealthy to some degree. Mm -hmm. So there's that going on. But yeah, I also think we've kind of lost the plot. We've lost the belief about creating brand fame and having a brand that everybody talks about. Mm -hmm. I think we're much more comfortable in smaller targeted groups. And I think that's a mistake. Yeah. Um, the, uh, one of the things that came up, and it, is, it could well be a case, to kind of follow on from my point. I, I chatted to somebody, Ray Sheeran, who ran an agency in Ireland a couple of months ago. And he's saying that just most of the campaigns out in the world that actually surface out in the world, it's all vanilla. And I think one of the things that we chatted about, I've said this before, like we focus groups. T- I've seen campaigns that won pitches from the creative agency, brilliant campaigns. And then what goes out to market, say, 
six months later is very different because it's been overly sanitized in the focus group. They've chipped away a bit of it there, a bit of it there. Yeah. And you solve for the average. And then, so the question I have is, I think when, when we, I don't know why, I mean, it's a creative business. So love your thoughts on this. As a client, why would you hire a creative agency and get their expertise, pay for their expertise, and then not take that advice, entrust the kind of the judgment of whether that ad is good or not to a bunch of people who are paid to attend focus groups? What's the point? It's a very good question. You know, this question of pre-testing advertising comes up all the time. And it's really interesting. When I was a younger marketer, the standard line was research is always good. Uh, And that included pre-testing. As I've got older and I've hung out with better and better senior CMOs, and let's remember, there's a lot of CMOs who are absolutely useless, right? Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the ones that that are genuinely good and earn the place. All of them say the same thing to me, which is, I'm going to do my research to identify the problem. I'm going to do my research to work out the what. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to hire a good creative agency. I'm going to brief them well, and then I'm going to trust them, and I'm going to support them. And and to your point, I'll get the good work as a result. I think the companies that pre-test or or the companies that don't have the guts to be a little bit more controversial – are the ones that lose out because I mean, if there are very few things that are you know inarguable in marketing, but one of them is, and I totally subscribe to this belief these days, that model of brand fame, that model of any publicity with a few notable exceptions is good publicity, mm-hmm. is pretty much true, right? Yeah, you don't want to err on the side of safety here. The simple model is if you come to mind that salience thing, yeah, that's job number one, and however you get it is pretty much good news. Yeah, because I read your your article last week on the whole Ronaldo Coke thing um, and all the different schools of thought and it's a, it's a great read to anyone as I said I'm a big fan yeah just on that point I remember like one of the campaigns I worked on was the Cadbury's Gorilla campaign Phil Rumble the CMO at the time like that, there's no way that would have worked it, I don't think it did work in focus groups now he went off on a limb and decided to ignore the focus groups you know it broke every rule didn't have the product in it was nothing to do with the category but it was talked about it became you know a hard act to follow the difficult second album was was tricky after that but it was a brilliant case of it should it shouldn't have worked but it did as to talk a little bit there's a you touch on it a little bit there there's a there's a very popular narrative that is is sometimes kind of peddled around and i look i understand you have to look at self-serving you have to see what people's agendas are but it's this this idea about the kind of old media versus new media and i think at best old media traditional media is at best unnecessary and at worst dead now i think one of the brilliant things that people in digital marketing did was they they coined this phrase performance marketing because by inference it suggests that everything that's not performance marketing doesn't perform so i think it was a really clever thing they did and like who who wants to do marketing that doesn't perform so what are your views on that on that blend and, and the mix the importance of like kind of more traditional channels like tv and outdoor they, we don't need them as you said anymore in lots of cases but are they still really important or not yeah and i think to be even more credible to the digital marketing gang that not only did they name their stuff performance marketing they also labeled all of the non-performance marketing stuff they didn't do, either legacy media or traditional media, yeah. and kind of bucketed it all together. And and for me, those labels are incredibly stupid. Yeah, mm-hmm. If you study properly the history and indeed the present time, and you look at marketing communications, there is a clear recurring uh, conclusion, which is all tactics have a place depending on strategy. Mm -hmm. And the more tactics that you include in a campaign, generally speaking, the more effective it will be. And so this idea that there's a group of digital over here or performance over here and, you know, traditional over here, 
isn't just incorrect, it's strategically stupid. Mm. What we need clients to be, and we've forgotten this word for a long time, is media neutral. Mm -hmm. As a client, you should be suspicious of absolutely every media until you can be certain it's going to deliver for your particular brand. So, yeah, I think we need to treat everything with an equal level of suspicion Mm -hmm. and not, I mean, I'm always curious, you know, I love, I love a lot of people that work in digital marketing. I just don't understand the job title. What does the D mean anymore, right? Yeah. Radio in Ireland is more digitally delivered now than broadcast. Every outdoor ad bar about 10% in Dublin is on an LED screen, not on, on print anymore. Newspapers are making all their money from digital editions. And, yeah. you know, Google's been around for more than 20 years. So this digital traditional hoo-ha is very unhelpful. They, yeah. they all have a place, Dave. And... What I would ask every single uh, Irish uh, marketer to do is assume they're all bullshit. Get your strategy done first mm-hmm. and then see which combination of all those different tools will deliver best for you. And there is no single answer, right? Yeah. And it doesn't help to create silos before we've even got a strategy put together. Yeah, true. I couldn't agree more. We'll go into some of those points you made about specialization in a couple of minutes because I'd love to get your mm. view on that to become complex. But one of the things that, like when you think about the job, somebody working in an agency, a media agency more so, um, the growth in digital has made that job quite an admin heavy job now. So those people are spending huge amount of time drowning in data and analytics. And we seem to be rich, we're data rich, but insight poor, I think is the way I've said it before. So you talked about old media and being unfashionable. I think in terms of research as well, like everything became about uh, real time, fast moving metrics. That was the only yeah. thing that counted. And old fashioned research, like you'd nearly be mortified going in client meetings going, we've panel based research or we're going to sit down and talk to consumers. It became really unfashionable. So do you think as an industry that we are that kind of data rich and insight poor? So we spend so much time measuring the what, the what's going on, the real metrics, but we don't spend anywhere near enough time measuring the why. And that involves talking to people. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's a couple of things. I, I always think about, you know, these videos on social media where they, they show your robots uh, like running around and jumping up and down and stuff, you know, and it all yeah. looks like robots are about to take over the world. And I saw a video yesterday of all the outtakes of all the robots falling over and like breaking themselves, you know. <laughs> And it's very similar to all this horseshit at marketing conferences where some idiot will stand up and talk about big data and machine learning and all of that. It ain't that good, first yeah. of all. It might get that good down the track, but it sure as shit isn't that good at the moment, right? It's it's just not that impressive. And even if it is quite good, let's not forget, most of those insights come from communications and targeting, which is about 5% of a marketer's job, Right you're going to struggle to get machine learning to do a lot of the work needed up front to design the product, if it's not software at least, you know what I mean, and get those big insights. Mm-hmm. And and the final piece is, yeah, I'm with you. They're, again, obsessed with test and learn, test and learn, test and learn. That's a brilliant way to finish the last 15 yards mm. of any form of research. The reality is if you do the hard yards of doing qualitative research and basic quant, First, you're going to speed things up tremendously and then by all means test and learn at mm-hmm. the end in, in using some quote-unquote big data. But totally with you. I, I think, again, we're biased towards the, you know, the trendy stuff. Yeah. The reality is you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence means a computer program. Right? Let's mm-hmm. get it in perspective. Yeah. That's what it means. And we're, you know, we're guilty of this pornography of change where anything that's cool and got new titles – 
is instantly seen as being better than anything that's old yeah and that we've been using for you know decades and and that's fundamentally stupid yeah yeah and i mean i agencies are where when i say i we're as bad they're guilty of getting so excited about relatively small new usually digital tactics and we're so far ahead of what clients want need or even care about that we just kind of we blind ourselves with these pretty small things so um on digital, well, I, I can see the allure of short-termism, right? So I actually see why the benefits are because you can measure things. Whether, you, whether they're right or wrong, you can actually see your return on things in the short term. And I think, mo- I won't say everybody, but most people in marketing believe in the importance of longer-term investment and brand building, right? And we've never had more. I think today, when you look at all the brilliant work, that the marketing theory that exists, all the evidence-based work that, that Bennett and Field has done, we've never had more evidence now to prove that point. And yet, the debate still rages on. Uh, the question I have is why why don't non-marketing people believe in in long-term branding? Because anytime I've said this to a client and showed them the IPA work and showed them that one, I get this answer. Yeah, yeah, that's great. But but our category, brand, company, client, whatever, is slightly different to that. Those rules don't apply yeah. to that. So so that's backward looking. So we're slightly different. So is that true? Or do you think marketing are just not no. good at fighting their corner? Yeah, I, I don't think you can blame the finance people. I don't think you can. We, we know, we we create this bet noir of a, a CFO that's somehow forcing the company to be short term. None of that's true. Marketers have been useless at marketing their marketing. That's the fundamental case, right? You're right in the sense that we now. I mean, mostly thanks to Binet and Field, who've made it simple enough for everyone to grasp. Um, we do have strong empirical arguments for the long of it. The problem is, ultimately, most businesses don't even work on a 12-month cycle anymore. Mm. Most of them are in a three-month, three Jesus, one-month cycle. Yeah. Right? When you work in that time frame, in that planning horizon, there's no way you can make a case for long-term brand building. Yeah. You, you just can't do it. Because the long-term is not the stitching together of lots and lots of short-term horizons, that's fundamentally not what it is, right? Mm-hmm. You have to stretch it out and look at a period in marketing terms of two or three years, right? Yeah. That's what the long of it means. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it goes beyond that, but you have to have two to three years. The reality is there's almost no company that will ever look at the world that way unless the senior marketer is able to show them the mistake of looking short, 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 short. And the great irony of this is by looking at ROI, performance marketing, short-term returns, making significantly less money than if they'd have taken the long-term view over a three-year period. Because that's what the long and the short of it really tells us, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at three years and you split your money 60-40, 60 long, 40 short, and you, you spend your money appropriately, you will certainly not make more money in year one. It would be yeah. highly unlikely. But across the three years, when you average it out, you would make significantly more. Yeah. But marketers have not been able to make that case properly, and ROI and short-termism have dominated their thinking. But I wouldn't be blaming CFOs. I would blame marketers that aren't capable of marketing marketing to everyone else. Yeah, that's a fair point. And, and, I, and I, I totally agree. Look, the, the quarterly cycle, th- th- that happens. And, you know, that's the market and the city places a value on, on you know, market capitalization. That share price is me- measured that way. But not m- not all companies, particularly in Ireland, they're not all like publicly traded stock companies. And yet and yet they still don't invest in it. And I think one of the, one of the concerns I had was that 
even within marketing. So um, I don't know what the turnover of clients are like in your market or even in the UK, but in Ireland, like if you say it's three years and sometimes even three to five years, if I'm a marketing person in a, in a company, it doesn't matter what that company is, I probably ain't going to be there in three years time, right? So it's not in my interest yeah. to do something today that I ain't going to get the benefit from. My successor is going to get that benefit. Now, I know I could benefit from somebody else doing it right the last time, but when, as a company, if you reward your employees on a bonus yearly, which is what they do, it's not in my interest. And also your agency, right? The, the best thing you'll get as a media contract is three years. So even to say, when we, like uh, if we do something now, we win a client today, by the time right. we, get, we get around to doing it, we have a three-year contract, by the time we get around to that being actualized or realized, we're up to pitch again. So it's actually not in an agency's interest thing. Are we, are well, we, are we, are we setting ourselves up to fail? We reward short-termism, even internally in marketing. We do it. We do if the metrics are slanted that way. So there's, there's different ways to measure the impact, right? If the impact is purely based upon revenue or even profit, you're absolutely right. I, you, you know, look, I'm a pretty big Neanderthal about this. I don't think you can show me a dollar ROI off a top of funnel advertising investment sponsorship that's anything other than bullshit, right? I, I just don't think that's possible. We hear a lot of talk about econometrics and, yeah. and MMM and all that. It, you know, it's a black box. For me, the trick is as follows, right? Stay, the first thing you have to do is, again, back to Field and Burnett's work, you need to, as a company, as a marketer, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to say, this is where I'm going to split my marketing budget for the year, mm -hmm. right? Now, technically, that in FMCG should be 60 long, 40 short. That's not always possible. Yeah. And my point to clients has always been, if you can't get three years of your budget where 60% goes to brand building before you get itchy figures, don't do it. Mm. You know, put less in. It's better to have 30% long-term brand yeah. building for three years then 60% for a year, and then you shit yourself and put it all into targeted Facebook ads. Yeah. So the first job is work out how much money am I putting into long-term, top-of-funnel, emotional, mass-marketed brand building, and how much goes into the short. So you split that budget right at the start of the year a priori. The next thing then, to your point, is the good news is the short performance marketing can absolutely be held accountable with immediate ROI. That's what it's meant to do. But that longer-term slice of the budget that has to have, quote-unquote, softer metrics that can still be measured in a hard way, right? Yeah. Is awareness increasing? Is consideration increasing? Is preference or belief that my brand is X, Y, and Z increasing? They're the hard metrics that you can set up front and show that it is working with that longer-term picture in mind. Oh, I know occasionally when we get that in place – that that's the way to do it. And the only thing I'd say, the only caveat is having worked for several companies that got a massive add-on for Field and Burnett's work, but went in at 70% long-term brand building, didn't even make a year of it before yeah. they were worried about losing out and yeah. basically pulled all the money away. Find a sustainable amount of the budget that you can put away into long-term brand building that leaves enough money for performance marketing to deliver the budget, because there's no long if, if you fuck up the short, yeah, right? True, yeah. And, and that's the way to play the game. And, and there is a beautiful moment that comes two, three years in where the long-term brand building starts to make the performance marketing work better and the performance marketing gains start to fund the long-term brand building and right. that wheel starts to move. Ironically, it sets up a further problem I had with a very large global sportswear company where after the long-term stuff starts working in year you know, two or three, 
there's a real temptation to take the money anyway out of long because the short-term ROI is getting better and better and yeah, better. Yeah. And it looks like it's all coming from the online stuff. And you're like, no, you've set it up with all of this top of funnel stuff. Keep it moving in that order, you know? Mm. And, I, and that moment when it happens, I'm always struck by something, Dave, where even quite senior marketers, when they do a proper strategy and it properly works, they're always kind of fucking amazed, like, holy shit, it's working. And it's like, <laughs> did you not think this would make a lot of money? Because that's why we're here. Yeah. There's always this weird, you know, a lot of very senior marketers have never actually done a strategy over multiple years and made fuckloads of cash. It yeah. always strikes me as interesting. You know, they, yeah. they're, they're genuinely surprised when it works, you know? Yeah, true. I guess, and that is the temptation to cash out rather than keep the long-term brand feed that machine feeding the short-term performance. Because you go, well, you could cash out in year one and just say, "I'm taking, I'm taking the profits." But you know, it, and and you won't see the downside of that for a year or two because it will it'll continue to be That's fed. Right. So, but it's the ability to think. So, thinking in three-year cycles, I think is a good thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay with. We're talking about classic marketing theory. I'm going to stay with classic marketing theory just for a minute because you have famously gone toe to toe with with a certain Byron Sharp. I watched your debate. You won. You won that debate fair and square. You won. Um, look, I know a lot of the rivalry is is very tongue in cheek, and I know you're a fan and you respect him and you like him. Um, but. I'm a bit frustrated because it's made my life in misery sometimes because I think it's an overly simplistic view of marketing and you would be amazed at how many clients buy into it all in, literally every bit of yeah. it. And it kind of makes my life a bit of a misery sometimes. So what, what's your view on that overly, the, the, the Institute's overly simplistic view of marketing? Do you buy into it? What do you believe? What do you believe is bullshit? I have a bit of sympathy for them. So look, my take on Ehrenberg Bass has always been that there's a couple of titanic impacts that they've had, right? Well, you've got to rewind back about 15 years, which you, you'll remember, Dave, where we were so precious about targeting. We were almost proud of campaigns that excluded people, right? We'd gone bananas mm. towards targeting, right? And same thing, we'd gone bananas about brand loyalty and you know, you know, love marks and all of that. And so what Ehrenberg Bass did brilliantly was restore the order back towards the middle, towards mass marketing, away yeah. from loyalty and towards the idea that, you know, there were a lot of different potential brands you would pick from. And the, these things were, you know, an evidence-based stuff. These things were very needed in the sort of turn of the century. The problem is twofold. I think Ehrenberg Bass went a little too far and tipped the scales too much of the way. But to their credit, it's mostly morons that don't understand their work dragging it much further, yeah. right? If you if you actually understand a lot of the Ehrenberg Bass work, they're not saying different, or Byron's not saying differentiation doesn't work. He's saying it's much harder to achieve than most would think. Yeah. He's not saying customers aren't brand loyal. He's not saying don't target segments. Mm -hmm. It's all the morons, quasi-intellectual morons that go, oh, science. It's a scientific law <laughs> that have made it really difficult. So I think there's more nuance in the Ehrenberg Bass stuff, especially when you listen to Byron talk about it. And I do think they've performed a great service to marketing, but I totally agree. It's gone too far the other way. And now every Tom, Dick and Harriet on, on LinkedIn is saying, oh, no, you don't do any segmentation. Yeah. Uh, mass marketing is the only way to go. Oh, no, you don't do differentiation. And it's just as bad as the idiots 20 years ago saying, you know, I exclude everyone except this small group yeah. from my brand. You know, I, I, I know this is not a positive thing to say, but I don't think there are that many relatively bright marketers out there. There's a few, but, you know, you take Scott Fitzgerald's definition of intelligence, the ability to hold 
two contradictory ideas mm. in your head at the same time, you know, it's possible to do mass marketing and target marketing at the same time, to differentiate and be distinctive at the same time. But you have to be, you know, smarter than, you know, your average bricklayer to be able to do that. And a lot of these marketers talk a good game, but they're fucking useless when it comes <laughs> down to it, right? I'll tell you, I'm very interested, Dave. I run one of the ways I examine, I do this uh, online course now uh, in brand management, mini MBA in brand management, and the, we don't do exams. The final challenge is they run the brand they build a plan for for five years in a simulation. And their grade is their share price at the end. And what's fascinating is a lot of, I have to say the men especially, a lot of the men who've been giving out advice throughout the course end up just fucking getting bankrupt. I mean, they can't do it. And a lot of, the, I have to say, a lot of the women, particularly the younger women that haven't said diggity shit throughout the course, smash the simulation and kill it. Mm. And I think there's a lot of people that do the talking and marketing aren't actually any, any good at it. I always compare it to being a bricklayer, right? If we were all bricklayers, all we talk about is how to lay brick in a good way, right? And we yeah. wouldn't over-intellectualize it. It would just be about making good brick walls. And th there's a very strong argument that that's really all marketing is about, yeah. is practically doing the job of marketing, right? The minute we start getting overly intellectual about it and talking about fucking science, you know, we're, we're in deep trouble because most <laughs> people don't understand science. They yeah. think they do. Yeah. That's a real real problem. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm going to talk to you about your mini MBA towards the end, but I, I want to just kind of explore that thought uh, a little bit in terms of overcomplication. So I had a chat with, um, don't know if you know him, Julian Cole. Uh, he's a strategist yes. based in certain... Yeah, he was on last year. And we were talking about, it, it was a bit of a kind of strategy love-in, so self-indulgence maybe on my part, but it was a, a really good episode. And like I talked about the increased complexity in the agency landscape now. So like we're a small market. Ireland is pretty small. It is not uncommon yeah. to go to a client meeting where there are five maybe six different agency or specialisms represented, all of whom have their own strategy person, all of whom have their own internal frameworks and ways. Of, and what you end up with, and I feel sorry for clients sometimes, because what you end up with is five different strategy presentations um, for their discipline, five sets of kind of slightly nuanced, but kind of all the same type of language, talking about the same type of stuff, just worded a different way, having a different role for comms, and you end up with massive over-strategization. So, like yes. it's really, and you've written quite a lot about strategy in general. You're saying it does, and it's what you're saying there. It doesn't need to be that complicated. It, sorry, it shouldn't be that complicated. So, what's your view on this multiplicity of agency partners? Well, Is there too many? Is it too complicated? And how do you yeah. how do you strip strategy so back? It's a big one, Dave. So first of all, the biggest problem we've got is strategists, okay? So suddenly we're drowning in strategists, okay? I really think that's indicative of an industry that's lost its way a little bit. You don't want a strategist, right? What you need is strategy, right? Mm -hmm. And I was much more comfortable when it came out of planning than it was, you know, I'm a, I'm a strategist. Because that infers I don't do the diagnosis and I don't do the execution. To your point, I just do the strategy and there's, you know, I find that's really, pro and it's going to get worse, right? There's a strategist in, in every tree at the moment. And to my experience, the only person that really needs to do the strategy is the client, right? Now, there is a role for agency strategy, don't get me wrong. But we've all worked for good clients that all, you know, you have. I've had this conversation, right? The agency's come in, and you want multiple agencies, right, around a table. I don't believe in a jack-of-all-trades hybrid agency model. I, I do believe you need multiple players. But I believe they're tactical players. And I think the strategy and the integration comes from a good client, emphasis on good client, right? 
I, I believe integration happens from the client. I think strategy comes from the client. And I've had this conversation before where I've brought in very good agencies to a company I'm working for, and I've almost had to say to them in reception, guys, she knows what she's doing. Just fake the brief. Do you know what I mean? Don't don't swim upstream. This one, it doesn't need the help, and she'll knock you back if you do. Just take the instructions. Now, I, the problem is there aren't as many clients as there should be that have that strategy mm. done. And that's when, you know, there are too many sausages at the barbecue and everyone's coming in with a with a different countervailing strategy. To be clear, though, what do we mean here? I am certain I am correct. There are only three things in a strategy, right? You need to be clear on targeting. You need to be clear on positioning. And you need, back to our earlier conversation, to be clear on objectives. And if you have those three in place, you can bring in great agencies and you can get great work. Mm-hmm. I would never, I mean, agencies have to swim upstream and work this out a lot of the time because, again, let's be honest, the majority of clients don't have the strategic capability to work this shit out. The problem is when you open that Pandora's box of, well, the agency will help me with the strategy. As you say, you've got multiple agencies, most of them, not all of them, are full of shit. They're all using different concepts, they're all up their own assholes. And before you know it, you're drowning in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, love marks, and you know the rest of it. So, yeah, I, I think a strong client that gets strategy and can brief good agencies is the answer. We just don't get that answer very often. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I'm going to change tack a little bit. I want to talk, because this is, again, something that you've written. I mean, you've written about everything, but this is something that I particularly enjoyed when I read. And it, and this is going to be a can of worms. Pride Week was a couple of weeks ago. And again, we saw the huge... I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Like, everyone supporting Pride Week is a good thing, right? Fine, mm. brilliant. Um, but oh, you see a lot of brand pageantry and showboating and, and tailgating on culture, I think, is the way we do it. Now, purpose is a bit of a can of worms. Um, done well, it's great. I think it's And I think it's increasingly important for... Like, even for as an employer brand... What do you stand yeah. for? People look for that more and more and more. You've written about purpose. You've been scathing of purpose. Pseudo, well, not scathing of purpose, scathing of pseudo purpose. Well, I had a whole podcast about it. And I think like purpose marketing, the problem is the marketing, not the purpose. I think when your marketing department are finding your purpose, you've got a real problem. So um, what do you buy into brand purpose? Do you think it works? Do you think it's good? Is it as important as the marketing press seem to think it is? Or is it all nonsense? And actually, can, and can, it, can it be a comfortable bedfellow with a company that has to maximize shareholder value or make a profit? No, I mean, I'm I'm pretty dead set that almost all of it's a load of cock, first of all. So I've had to do things recently where I don't want to be completely negative, even though I am pretty much... Com- I mean, let's be clear what purpose is. It's a massive load of wank. Um, <laughs> the, probably, there's so many ways to, to go at it. I'd probably go to Bob Hoffman, the ad contrarian. Hoffman's got this brilliant analysis. I mean, I call it Hoffman's refrigerator. And Listeners should do it this evening, right? Climb out of your agency turret, go into your kitchen, open your refrigerator, and look, behold, the things that you consume. How many of those things have you even got a clue whether they have a purpose or not? (laughs) Never mind whether you ascribe to that purpose or were influenced by it when you made the purchase, right? It's a massive load of wank, and it's there for a couple of reasons, right? The first reason is most marketers these days, particularly senior marketers, are uncomfortable about selling stuff. Mm-hmm. And but you know, this is a difficult one. I don't know when we stopped being proud of 
marketing good products that make a good profit, that satisfy customers. And listen, I'm not saying destroy the environment or treat employees badly or or or, uh, or treat animals badly. I'm not saying that's that's what they should do. But what I'm saying is there's there's a there should be a purpose inherent in the capitalist endeavor, right? But that's not cool. That's definitely not cool. Second, that load of wank about purpose drives profitability is total wank. It's not that simple. If it was, it would be a lot easier, but it isn't. Clearly, and there's a very strong philosophical argument here. If you're saying to me you're doing the purposeful thing because it makes you more money, and I can show you that the least purposeful way actually is more profitable, does that mean you'll stop your purpose and start doing evil things? Mm. The point of purpose is it should cost you something. The challenge of purpose is you don't make as much money, but you do the right thing. Yeah. yeah. And and these idiots like making the case that purpose and the capitalist endeavor run in the same direction, pull the other fucking leg, right? It's like Wuhan not being the source of fucking coronavirus. Come on. <laughs> pull the other leg. Do you think we're all stupid? You know, we're not all morons, right? So in that sense, I think, you know, we've got to be clear about brand purpose. There are exceptions, a handful mm-hmm. of exceptions, but purpose in those cases didn't necessarily come from marketing. Yeah. It came from a company that wanted to do things differently and, and has it baked into their DNA. And so, yeah, I, I think we are moving to a post-purpose era, finally, but it's been a really difficult four or five years. I mean, you never underestimate the amount of bullshit that <laughs> marketing is prepared to produce about itself right yeah yeah and true. at the end of the day celebrate making a decent product that doesn't destroy the planet but delights customers and employs people mm. that's okay yeah. you know that is okay yeah definitely agree um i want to talk about brand island for a minute like we have and it's classic marketing i think it's brilliant um advertising we have this we like to peddle this notion that we're a, a technology hotbed that we're rich in human intellectual capital around technology that's complete marketing falseness. Like we have HQs here for the big tech companies because we offer fairly chunky tax incentives. That's why they're oh, here. Yeah. So that yeah. is why they're here. But we, we like to spin and um, put the marketing on that and say, no, 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 Ireland's a, a brilliant place. We're rich with, with people who are fantastic at technology. I think that's nonsense. What I do think we're good at is um, we're quite... A create creativity is a thing we definitely yeah. punch above our weight on. We're storytellers. We are, um, you know, musicians. We are narrators. We are poets. I think that's something we could lean into. So when I think about Ireland as a brand, Ireland, if I was giving you a brief, do you think we should lean into that more? Like make Ireland more of a creative, like double down on what we're good at and stop pretending we're something we're not. Double down on creativity. Look at Ireland as being like London's a center of excellence for creativity. Why couldn't Ireland be? Why couldn't we lean into that and just own that? What do you think? Oh, I like it. I mean, my impression of the Irish has always been very, very strong. And I, I tell you, though, for me, their biggest strength is deal making. Um, I spent a lot of my career in France and watching the French negotiate it has been one of the great learning experiences of my life. You know, coming out of America, going to Paris and watching how the French were doing it in a manner that Anglo-Saxons just, you know, were lost. And the French were geniuses at this, you know. But there comes a point where the French have to tell you how they fucked you. They can't resist, right? At some point, the French have to turn around and go, c'est ça, right? The thing I love about the Irish, and I've seen it two or three times, is their ability to get a brilliant deal and yet leave the person that they got the deal out of convinced that they fucked over the Irish (laughs) when the Irish fucked them so bad they still haven't worked it out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
I love that about the Irish. I think they're politically so astute and clever. Uh, you know, the story of the EU and the Irish will never be told, unfortunately, but it's the story of the Irish just dangling the EU around their little fingers, and yet the EU still thinking the poor old Irish don't get it, right? So yeah. I, I love that I love the, the political sensitivities and the double the double thinking of the Irish to be able to present one thing but play a different game under the table. I love that about the Irish. And I think they're the best at it in the world. Yeah, well, yeah, no, it's good. I don't know some of that. Maybe we are good. You're making us sound smarter than maybe we are. I'm not sure. Certainly politically, I don't you're know. Just, you're just making my point, Dave, because you're what you're doing is you're going, oh, fuck, don't tell them the secret of the Irish. <laughs> Pretend we're all stupid fucking brogans off the fucking land. Yeah. You know what I mean? The Irish will never get us. Oh, no, we're great deal makers. That's for sure. Yeah. Go, oh, no, we're not. Don't threaten anybody, you know. They leave, they leave us alone, even in terms of our holding company. They leave us, guys. The Irish, they're all right. Leave them, dude. They're delivering a number. It's grand. Um, I want to think about the industry for a minute. Now, media brands, we're a small country and we have the inspill of, uh, we're an English-speaking country, so we have the inspill of all media from the UK and, and a lot of cultural things, like even Premier League is the number one sport in Ireland. So a lot of stuff travels and we're ring fence. And I think about the media, the advertising industry, um, the publishers, the small, the, the really important local media that, that we need, they cannot compete with Google. Now, they can't compete with Google no. in the UK, but they cannot compete with Google, particularly in Ireland. They are absolutely killed. Now, I get... Google does not force anybody to advertise with them, nor does Facebook. And most of their money does not come from agencies. It's the long tail of people who used to spend on local newspapers and radio. And they do it completely with free will. So no one's forced yeah. them to do anything. And also, by the way, Google and Facebook give me incredible utility as a consumer. So the products I get free of charge from Google, amazing, fantastic. Park that for a minute, purely from advertising point of view. Do you think these companies should be broken up? So like Facebook will be, a significantly wounded animal if it was competing with Instagram as opposed to owning Instagram and WhatsApp? Are they too big? Should they be broken up? Is that just wishful thinking? Do you think there's a case for it? Or do you think capitalism reigns? They should be allowed to do what they want? It's kind of out of my remit, right? So as a mar I happily bullshit to you all day long about marketing stuff, regulatory stuff, I just don't get it, right? My, my initial take is market forces, you know, if you look at what's happening with TikTok, and it is a proper Facebook killer, right? If you look at the numbers, is that market forces are now able to operate in such a way that Facebook has a problem. Um, I think Google has a problem in the sense that I think search, now it's 20 years old, is really cluttered. I think yeah. it's like a bad TV station. I don't know. If you try to look, I was look, also looking for chair, dining room chairs yesterday. And fuck, I'm very specific about the kind of chairs I wanted. And I got all these ads telling me that they had these fucking chairs and none of them had them. It's just <laughs> that Google is nine, 10 ads deep um, before you get to what used to make Google great, which is yeah. that's, you know, that's the site I wanted. So, no, I, I don't know anything about it, first of all. But my sense is, you know, uh, to be fair to Google and to be fair to Facebook, you know, I, I think we've got to let them go through the motions. I think if I've learned anything, it's that big companies get big and stupid eventually, mm. and small companies come up and smash them. And disruption is a matter of when, not if. So especially in their space. And let's remember something else, right? Remember MySpace. If Facebook starts to lose users, the, it's not like Coca-Cola, where it takes 40 years for that consumption to gradually move away. If Facebook starts to lose its user base, it will be a global, incredibly fast uh, avalanche yeah. of people. Because mm -hmm. a social network is a social network, right? Mm -hmm. 
and, and we have to remember that as well. The minute that social network starts to desiccate, then it, there's it's, there's an incredible dramatic fall to come. So, yeah, look, I don't know, but I, look, let them play. I, I worry about Irish media as I do yeah. Australian media. There is no way they can compete. RTE can't compete. No, right? no. It's a global game now, right? Between Disney and Apple, mm. you you know, Irish media has no fucking chance at yeah. all. Apart from, apart from it's it's local content, which is you know that's all it's going to do. It's but like yeah, it's it's tough times, it's a tough time for everybody really. But um, we touched on this earlier on. Like I think marketing, like when I came into the industry, I joined the industry say twenty two years ago. Um, marketing from the outside in, it had a bit of swagger about it. It was an industry that was you know attractive. It attracted people. People wanted to work in it because because campaigns were talked about in culture. That's and, right. And I I don't think for market certainly we've huge problem getting talent at, not just in our business in the industry in Ireland. I know what's happening in the UK. I don't think marketing is all that attractive to graduates anymore. I just don't think it's, it has the the shine it used to have, the swagger, the impact in culture. So we see a lot of uh, talent going into the the Googles, Facebooks, Pinterest, and some of the smaller ones, TikTok as well, like we're losing yeah. talent and it's less attractive to them. So, but you're a marketing professor, right? So you are passionate about your craft and nurturing the kind of industry leaders of tomorrow. Hand on heart, do you think marketing is still a good career right now today for people to be coming into? Look, I do, but I agree that, and we've got some data on this, it's popularity among university graduates is definitely on the wane um, in many countries, not just in Ireland. Um but having said that, look, I have a weirdly capitalist approach to this, right? I mean, the, the t- do I think it's bad that we aren't attracting more talent to the industry? I do. But for those in the industry that are in their early 20s, the good news is compared to when you or I were getting in there, I mean, I'm getting a job in an advertising agency in London in 1991, and it was like fucking winning the pools. You know, there were yeah. like 900 people come from Oxford. I, I turned up from a red brick university in the UK, and then we're like, 75 fuckers from Oxford and Cambridge there, yeah. like doing classics. They were useless, but they were all there, you know, <laughs> trying to get a job. And now the competition's much lower. So, y- yes, I think we've lost a bit of our a bit of our sexiness, but I still think it's a great career path. It's a, especially good for people that have a mixture of talents, mm. a little bit of art and a little bit of science and a little bit of, of strategy. That's what makes marketing great. Mm. Is it's always been a, a, a you know a career for decathletes. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's not a, it's not a specialist career, and I, I love that continual challenge. And when I spot good young marketers that have a little bit of everything, that's when I, I get excited. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, and you, we, we talk, you talked about it earlier on. Somebody on my team, Maeve, who works on my strategy team, she's just actually finished. She took your your mini MBA course, and she was ah, she couldn't right. speak more highly of it. So, um, can you just give me for anyone listening? Because um, I'm a big believer in, in in well investing in yourself, but getting your company to invest in in their talent and, and upskill them and train them. And the base like. Tactics change. The basic fundamentals of marketing don't change. The basic fundamentals of human behaviors don't really change. The channels and the platforms and the distribution of media changes, but fundamentals don't change. So for anyone listening, can you give me a quick overview of what, what's covered in the, the Media MBA course? What's it about? What's the purpose? What do people get out of it? Um, and how does it work? So I was teaching MBA students for 25 years, and it was apparent that most marketers were never going to do an MBA, and most of them would never get a proper top-tier you know, Harvard, London Business School level training in marketing. So I took the course that I'd been teaching at schools like that and turned it into an online course. And the same syllabus and the same readings, 
We do it in a slightly different way because it's online. And it's, you know, I knew it would be convenient and I knew it would probably work and it has worked. The thing that has surprised me is it's better than being in the classroom. And that was not something I was expecting would happen. Like we have a net promoter score of about plus 75, which is something that no business school course would ever get, you know. So we were able to, in three months to train market. I mean, senior marketers, you know, from, from a good level to an amazing level. And the feedback we get is just, it looks fishy. It's so good. You know, 95% of them say it's made them a better marketer overnight. And almost all of them say it's the best course they've ever taken. So, we, you know, we'll train 10,000 marketers in 40 countries this year. Um, and it, it's it's great because it's working. And we're, you know, we're training marketers to be good at marketing. And, you know, that's that's strangely close to brand purpose. Obviously, it's a good capitalist enterprise too. But yeah, we're, 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 we've got a nice throng of marketers now who are who know what marketing is. And that's that's been the great, you know, the great discovery of my life is this digital classroom is is the place to be. Yeah, uh, yeah, it makes so, like definitely education and learning, the digitization of that, forced by the pandemic really has been has been huge and, and it's changed forever. Um, and as I said, Maeve and my team did it. She couldn't speak more highly of it. And right. what, so given that, um, we talked about, if you take marketing from end to end, there's a kind of, you know, the ability to be a good storyteller, the removal of things to not do, which strategy is often about, right down to being comfortable in data and analytics. What do you think makes, because you said earlier on, um, you're not a fan of the generalist agency, but I sense you, you are a fan of the generalist marketeer. So what makes a good marketing yeah. person? What makes, what make, what, what is that mix or that blend that you need? If you were building like the $6 million man in, you know, in the lab, what makes a great marketer? Well, it would be a $6 million woman. I'm a big fan of the idea of women being better at marketing than men, generally speaking, right? And mm-hmm. interestingly, I get a lot of shit about that mostly from women. But I've found that the talented marketers I've worked for over the years, predominantly female, um, I think you need a couple of different skills, right? I think it's a a discipline founded on empathy. You know, what does a marketer do? Fundamentally, we put ourselves in the shoes of the customer, right? Mm -hmm. So I think if you haven't got that empathetic skill, you're flawed from the outset. I think you've got to have a decent ability to be evidence-based then. Obviously, research is a foundation. In terms of strategy, you're absolutely right. It's about being choiceful yeah, and yeah. being focused. And you know, the more and more I learn about this, strategy really is about what we're not going to do. You know, yeah. It's about killing, not doing, and creating. And then, yeah, a little bit of tactical flair and creativity at the end. But yeah, I think that of all the skills, I think the empathetic ability to understand others Mm. The people that we're actually targeting is probably the cornerstone of it. Yeah. Um, and I think it begins with that. But that strategic ability and then the appreciation for creativity, it's all that nice mixture of different yeah. talents that is not necessarily that common, you know? No, absolutely. And I think increasingly as, like we've, and it's, we're, it's not just unique to us. We've got the people that we hire, say, to do performance. You have to be comfortable in data and brilliant with that. And they've got seven screens open. They're like day traders in the stock exchange. 
yeah. they're not great at the kind of you know, they'd be like to send you the data in the reports they're not great at pulling the why and then and then the people who are kind of more say I hate even saying it more traditional marketing people who are brilliant with clients brilliant at thinking about things um, and why people do things not just what they're doing they're not great with data and they're really hard because I think we're, we're polarizing those things we're hiring a certain type of people and we want analytical people and the people that we're hiring are great at that and we're then surprised that they're not great at you know, the, the interpersonal skills, the software skills. I've seen that, Dave. I've seen that play out. And I, I, I think it's it's troubling, but it's probably unavoidable. Yeah. There's definitely a trend within the long and the short to also have kind of separate teams. Yeah. I, I don't think the skills involved in performance marketing are, are present in those that do top of funnel, big creative campaigns. I just don't think those people really exist. And I'm more and more aware of brands and CMOs that, are picking kind of two teams yeah. and blending them together at the top. And and I don't think that's a bad thing. There's a big movement at the moment. It, it always happens. Like we talk about the long and the short. I think we've made it clear in the last few years, thanks to Field and Burnett and all of that. But then there's always some fucking idiot saying, oh, it's not that, it's not that binary. It's long and it's short. And, you know, you can put them all together. Just as we make some progress, some dighead turns up and, and you know, <laughs> argues against the thing that's doing us good. But I'm a big believer in keeping those two connected yeah. but distinct. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think you probably need to have a capability to do both things. And, you know, agencies that do those two things, again, integrated by a client that knows how, you know, the, what is the great thing about a sales funnel? It connects the total market to profit, yeah. the long to the short, brand to product, emotion, you know, to product. It, you know, you need a funnel because it, it literally is the vertebrae of a decent marketing campaign and it links the long and the short together. Mm. Yeah, great point. I'm not going to keep you too much longer, but I just want to get a couple of, kind of take a different slant again here. I've read a lot of your stuff. I'm a big fan of your writing. You have this kind of wonderful self-deprecating humor when you in a lot of the things you write. Um, so if you look back at your career, I'm not. I'm talking about brand like campaigns we'd worked on. Is there anything that you just said, oh, that was horrendous. It's like, it's borderline embarrassing or you just got it completely wrong. What's the worst thing you've worked on that you could, if you could just lock it in room, you know, whatever that's room 101, get rid of it, wipe it from memory. You're embarrassed to be associated with it. What's that? Oh, look, you always, you you know, you take your, you take your losses with you, right? Because they are important down the track. Um, probably the worst thing we ever did was I worked on the Spanish luxury brand Lueve, which is a very famous brand in Spain, right? Yeah. Um, bigger than Chanel, bigger than Vuitton in, uh, in Spain. And we were charged with revitalizing it. And I was working with the CEO and the creative director, both of whom I loved. And I was very strong with them, too strong about the need to be more radical and to push things. And they, they did it. And then we were on the news like in a bad way because okay. the, the, the campaign that was created was so disruptive that the whole of Spain kind of wanted to kill us, you know? Okay. And I can remember, you know, my CEO, she was very strong and very, very, uh, very wise. She'd run Mulberry before, so she'd been around the block and she's a great woman, Lisa. And I remember she rang me up and, and she said, uh, we're on the news and I said, oh, okay. And she said, not in a good way. And she said, but it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And I, to this day, I don't know if she knew that or she was just being a really good leader right. and just absorbing it all. 
Yeah. But either way, I mean, we survived. But yeah, it was fucking, it was fucking terrifying. Yeah, you, terrifying. you learn. I, I've never learned anything from pitch we've won. You learn from the things you learn from your losses. Hard to you don't learn from winning. Um, opposite of that question, you'd probably be less comfortable talking about this given your nature. But opposite of that question, what do you what campaign outwardly facing? Not work you've done like in terms of your your work as a marketing professor, but commercial campaigns, brand work. What are you most proud of? Oh, I think when we did. I worked on the team that revitalized Dom Perignon and um, in France and then globally. And I think that was work that was just beautifully done. We had a new CEO. We got everyone back to the Maison in France. We really did a lot of work on it. And we came up with a strategy and a position and the distinctive assets that just to this day, you know, this will be 15 years later, are still working. So I think that was a really nice, and that was a brand that everybody knew was great, but nobody knew anymore what was great about it in a weird way. And we really did bottle lightning there. And right. I think, you know, not just because it was such a big, gorgeous brand, but it it worked so well that I think that's my favorite. You know? Okay, great. Um, second, well, last question, but I'll, I'll wrap up with something else. I'm got, I give I'm giving you the gift of time travel now. Mark Ritson today, you've had a brilliant career, you've learned, made lots of mistakes, done lots of brilliant things. You can go back in time and you bump into recently graduated, fresh-faced Mark Ritson that tonight going out for a, what career advice would you give him? Or would you just say, you know what, just do exactly as I did, because it turned out pretty good in the end. What career advice would you give young Mark oh, Ritson? Look, I'd certainly tell him to get laid more. I think one of the things that I um I didn't appreciate at the time was like, I wasn't the best-looking guy in university, but I don't think I was as bad-looking as I thought at the time. So I'd probably say to myself, listen, you know, get stuck in, uh, first of all. And then that would be most important. And then second, um, I turned down Harvard Business School for a job in 1999. And I can remember going, Cash Rangan, who's a very famous Harvard professor, uh, professor of retailing, I remember him saying to me, well, and I gave a big talk at Harvard, and they all turned up, and Cash Rangan said to me, look, we, you know, Harvard Business School definitely wants Mark Ritson. Does Mark Ritson want Harvard Business School? And I remember going out that night in Boston and getting hammered and trying to work out on my own what the fuck I was going to do. And I decided not to. And I went to London instead, to London Business School. You know, it's very hard to know. It worked out fine. Yeah. But Harvard's Harvard and it always will be, you know, and maybe I should have had a detour through Harvard after all. Mm. I'll never get another invite like that, you know. So maybe that's the one where I would tell myself when Harvard make you an offer, Get your ass to Boston. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Great. We're nearly out of time. But if anyone's listening and they go, yeah, I, I want to look into this mini MBA course, where can they find that information about it? Where can they go? The best way is if you search for mini MBA in marketing, you're going to see, uh, first of all, a whole bunch of fucking losers that have copied us. So it's been hilarious watching this, right? There's a whole bunch of fucks that have called their course the mini MBA. Now, there's. Mini MBA exists. Like Rutgers University have done a mini MBA for 30 years, for example. And I stole it from McKinsey. I used to teach on the mini MBA at McKinsey years ago. And the whole logic of me calling it mini MBA was it's the marketing course from a proper MBA course that I taught for years, you know, mm. turned into something you can access. But because there's all these people, and I don't want to name any names, but you'll soon see who they are. They all think they can do it, right? They can all teach an online course and make millions of dollars. And the, the one problem in all that is it took 25 fucking years to be able to teach a proper course like this. Like, I didn't make the course up, you know, on, on the spot. Mm -hmm. And I have a team of about 10 people. I, that people miss that as well. They think it's me on my own in a fucking toilet doing it, you know? <laughs> so you'll see a whole bunch of fucking losers copying 
Not be in mini NBA, but if you scroll down, you'll you'll see the one with my ugly mug on it on Google. And we run it twice a year, April and September. Um, you can apply online. We'd love to have we take any marketer that wants to do it. So yeah, you'll find it online. And we'd love to have anyone, particularly we've got a good Irish following. Yeah, I would yeah. say we're about three, four percent Irish, which is, you know, which not is good. Bad. Yeah, it's not bad. We always take a We'd take a few more Irish, though, if they were available. So, you know, there's no discounts. But, you know, if you, when you do module now and you find out why. Um, yeah, we'd love to have anyone. So have, by all means, have a look. And we're open to anyone, especially if they're Irish. And it's starting again in September. So timing is, is, is there any date for it starting? What's the date in September it kicks off? Right in the middle of September. I think okay. It's the 15th it is. Oh, it brilliant. runs right through to Christmas. Okay. And, look, and the whole point is that we do it. Everyone's full-time marketers, right? So it's it's a four or five hour a week commitment, but you know you can still do a real job at the same time. Okay, Mark, I've kept you long enough. It's way it's into the evening time. I'm going to let you go now. So thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure, Dave. That was beautiful. And uh, stay safe out there in Ireland. You guys are you're pretty much vaccinated. So you're oh, yeah. right. what were you getting? Were you getting the Pfizer there, or what, what did they give? You? Oh, they're giving it. Well, you name it. We've got a whole load of them. We, I got the Pfizer one because I'm old, but they're firing out. You, you, whatever you want, you can have. We've got all. It's one that they're not using in Europe. We get we get shiploads sent out. It was like nobody in Bulgaria is getting vaccinated. So we're getting we're getting whatever comes in. We're firing people into people. So it's great though because there's a sense of normality. I guess we're not going to see you over in Ireland anytime soon. I know you've spoken here a few times, but. Oh. I love coming out because my old man still lives in, in I'm from Cumbria, I'm from the Lake District. So it's a, it's a quick step down to Manchester and across to Dublin. And I'd often take him with me and we'd get on the piss in Ireland and it was great. Um, and he's 80 odd now, but he still likes a drink. I don't think they'll let us out of Australia for another year, but right. one of the cities I would like to get to when they eventually let us out would be, yeah, get back to Dublin with my old man and get on the beers. Um, well, you know, it's, it's a cliche, mate, but I tell you, the crack is still one of the culturally most impressive things in the world. Do you know what I mean? A Friday yeah, yeah. night. No, we, we are. very Dublin, you know. I, I think it's still one of the few. It's like Italian food or, you know, French fashion. It, it remains a cliche that's true. You know what yeah. I mean? If you get in a pub with six pints in you on a Thursday or a Friday night in Ireland, you you, you bob along with it. You know yeah, what I mean? It's still absolutely. Alive yeah, well. you do. Well, Mark, if you're over, give let us know you're coming over and I'll I'll get the Irish Times to, to bring you out and pay for a load of pints for you and we can have a, if you're here for a weekend. So Dave, you can be up, our guest. Piss up on the Irish Times sounds like proper dangerous. Right. You just, that- you let me know. Rob Kinsa will foot the bill for that. You let me know you're in town and we we'll meet up. Listen, Mark, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Hey, mate, my pleasure. Stay safe. Take care. Cheers. Stay safe. Thanks, Mark. That's it. We are all out of time. So thanks for joining me today, Mark. And a big thank you also to Andrea on Sound and Kira in Marketing. And as always, thanks to our partners in Irish Times Media Solutions. If you like this episode, then follow us, tell your colleagues and listen back to some of the other great episodes. You'll find them by simply typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. Until next time, stay safe. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.